Welcome to Dare a New Belief, a place to discover what is possible for your life after the loss of a loved one, and where you will find inspiration, insight, support, and love, and hopefully a bit of laughter to help you through the day. Now here's your host, Nada Hogan. Welcome to Dare a New Belief, where you will find light and life, love and joy, healing, faith, and hope, a place where you get to believe what is possible for your life. And today, I have the great honor to pick up our conversation with Lisa Luckett for part two. And I just want to remind the listeners that Lisa is an entrepreneur, speaker, author, and mother of three young adults. And as a 9-11 widow, single mother, and breast cancer survivor, she knows the value of life's struggles and sees the light or silver lining in every situation. Lisa recognizes that life's lessons and grace lie within the struggle. So join in with us now as Lisa and I pick up and she shares with us the spiritual enlightened experience that came from 9-11 and three prescient, immediate knowings that Lisa experienced that same morning. Here we go. So in retrospect, I know that literally from the morning of 9-11, I was being guided. Yeah. And I was following my intuition. The way I would explain it then is that I just knew to trust myself. Mm. Because I could tell instantaneously, because I was in this objective place, I could see what was going on. And I had three prescient immediate knowings. The first one being on the morning, it could be so much worse than what we were actually watching as it was, because it could be like it was in February. And those buildings could be full because that was at 1230 in the middle of the day mm-hmm. versus nine o'clock in the morning. Right. So it was a 50,000 person population that filled those buildings. Wow. We buried under 3000 people. We could have buried 30,000 people. Right. And that could have devastated the whole United States economy. Oh, yeah. Like the ramifications of just the difference in time. The second was that our world as, I, as we knew it would never, was literally had altered on its axis. That we were profoundly changed forever instantaneously. Yeah. Yeah. And the third piece was that I knew it would be two years to a new normal. Now, that's a term I had never heard in my life before. So that was given to me. Well, the new normal? Two years to, to, a new, to whatever a new normal is, but that it would, was going to be two years. Oh, wow. That I had to put my head down and go. And one of the other parts of this, so I had my mother-in-law and the explosion in 93 prepare me for Teddy's death. I had a job when I was in my 20s that was literally so insane and so busy. It was like prioritizing fire after fire after fire until I would finally get to a point where the business would lighten up a little bit. I'd catch my breath long enough to you know, put my feet on the ground for five seconds. And then I'd go back into this massive pile of work. Uh, That's exactly the skill set I needed to handle what came after 9-11. Yeah. Because it was insane. Uh, just literally faceted people, news, just everything coming at us. Everything coming. And here, and you know, as the widow, you're res- the people, the families were receiving all of this, all of people's energy, their love, their, you know, their this, their that, the government, the world at large, the news, the the children. I mean, just it was insane. And so, knowing what I did from that job, I knew to literally just put my head down and go, mm. to not look left or right, yeah, to stay in the moment, to do what came next, 
and what came next and what and keep it as calm and keep it as normal for my children as humanly possible. Yeah. And I was given that. That was put into my head. Yeah. So that to, that's guidance. I know that now. Yeah. Yeah. And then by mid-morning, um, because I was in this place, I was watching, I got that, and I was watching all of my friends and neighbors who were just literally out of their minds in terror and fear, out, out of control, spinning around, not knowing what to do, wringing their hands, desperate. And I wanted to help them because while I knew Teddy was probably gone because of my experience in the first tower, in the first explosion, he was above the fire in the next, in the, in 2001 and in the attacks on on 9-11. So when you saw that, I saw that depth and darkness and dimension of that black smoke, I knew he was gone. Like there was no way anyone was going to survive that even for a minute, but I couldn't get my head around that completely. I could, however, get my head around the fact that my country had just been attacked by terrorists. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we all watched that in real time. I saw the second right. plane hit the second building in real time and went, oh boy, we are in trouble. And then the flights that were grounded. And then we waited for Shanksville when the flight 93 was brought down. And then the plane that hit the Pentagon. I mean, if you remember that morning, it was going on for hours. Yeah. So all I could see was how desperate my friends were. And all they were saying to me was, what can I do? What can I do for you? What can I do for you? Because they're projecting themselves into my situation, right? right? Everybody sees when it happened, when a a horrible thing happens to someone, you know, if you have a child, a daughter, Dara, again, with Dara, we all project ourselves to you being her mom, you know? So we all do that. And so people were doing it to me and I wanted to help my friends as much as they wanted to help me. I was in this with them as, as an American, as yeah. a friend, as, a, as somebody involved with the crisis. And it's not like I was an instant widow. That's not where my head went. Where it went was, we've got to, you know, I've got to help. And a voice of reason, literally a voice came into my head. I say of reason, but a voice said, Lisa, let them help you. Mm. Which was the last thing I wanted. Yeah. I don't want help. I was raised in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Like I was born in 1960, man. The women's movement, to ask for help or admit defeat was so weak. I mean, it was the ultimate weakness or failure. No, I can do it all. I can do everything. I'll help you. You can't help me. Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh. Wrong idea. The minute I, so I heard this. So my ego was like, oh, no, no, no. I don't want anybody to help me. And my heart must have taken over because I was blown so far open that I let go of my coveted control. And I say that, and it felt like, like I literally walked through this metaphoric door of surrender and was overwhelmed by the, this rush of gratitude and humility and the fear, this feeling of love that literally has been with me ever since. Mm. And it was in that moment that I could not stop seeing the good in everything. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That feeling of love that you just now spoke of that has been with you since that moment, that's, you're not speaking of people loving you. That's a feeling of love, like from infinite intelligence, from universe, from, yes. from source, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, this was, this was an, ex, an spiritual enlightened experience yeah. from the morning of, and you know, I've, I've studied this for many years. And in fact, we, when we can unstick ourselves from the victimhood around nine 11, and we start looking at the lessons of our own culpability in it and start seeing it from other points of view, we too can get unstuck as a culture yeah. and begin to learn and become wise and, and reach more for that sage. 
So, but to answer further answer your question, I about two weeks after within the first couple of weeks, I vowed that I would never let Teddy and all the others die in vain, that I would make something good come from this or the terrorists would have won. Yeah. Yep. And I'm a warrior man and that is not going to happen on my watch. But the only way I could see to do that was to figure it out. So I took my dysfunctional life of 40 years to the analyst's couch. And I, I explain it like this because at the time, it's less so now, but at the time, the idea of going to therapy or analysis was so shamed mm. in our culture. Yeah. Meanwhile, we're so desperate for it on so many levels. But at that time, I would say, you know, 9-11 was the emotional equivalent of having every bone in your body broken simultaneously. Mm. If you were in a car accident or you fell off a building and you broke your bones, where would you go? Yeah, straight to, yeah. Go to the doctor. Right, right? yeah, yeah. This is the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> Times millions and millions of people. Yeah. Times culture-wide damage. Yeah. So I went to the doctor for my mind. Yeah. And I started to figure it out. And I looked at my life and I looked at the world and I looked at, so I needed to, to understand a world where this could even happen. I needed to unwrite all of what I had been taught and learned because what became very clear to me was all bets were off, all the rules were broken, and no one knew what to do. Not one of our, one of our leaders knew what one thing to do to guide us, to lead us. Yeah. So there's one book, the first book I've written, which is what brought me to you, but there's another one behind it. And the prompts of these books are this. Why were we so emotionally unprepared to handle 9-11 as a culture? And where was all the wise counsel to get us through it? Yeah. That's another question for conversation for later. But point being that I went to the analyst couch and, and dug through and sorted through my experiences, relationships, my behaviors, other people's behaviors, not to blame, not to in any way point fingers, but to understand yeah. the root causes of my dysfunction, yeah. my unhappiness. And from that, when you peel, when I finally had peeled back, literally decluttered my psyche enough, what happened? I popped through the ceiling to mental health. And in doing so, was really, was given like a rush of creative energy that I know now was a channel download of a brand of kindness mm -hmm. to change the world. Yeah. Many, many, many people in the early 2000s have had experiences like this where they wake up one day and they just get it. Yeah. And often it's from trauma, but people are also just waking up. So the important thing here is that you have to keep pushing forward. You have to keep questioning. And it's, you know, if you want to choose and be victimized, you're wasting your life. Right. Life is a gift here. Our people who have died would not want us to be miserable throughout all the rest of our years. Yeah. Yeah. We, you and I have immortalized Dara and immortalized Teddy in changing the world to be a better place. Yeah. That's why we're here. Otherwise, yeah. they've died in vain and that's not okay. Right. At all. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is, it, it is the gift in that. And it's always hard for me to articulate that. Um, and that's always something that I work on to find the way to say it, that it makes the most sense to somebody else hearing it who has never been in those shoes. Because for me, I have no idea what it's like to be in your shoes. To lose your husband is one thing. And then to have 9-11. I mean, it's right. Because that was the thing that changed the whole world. And I, I mean, it's just, Oh my God. But what came yeah. out of that, the love that came out of, came out of this. And, and I know you and I had spoken of this where the man that hit Dara, it wasn't even a conscious thought. There was not ever a time in my life. I can't say the same thing for my, my husband, but there wasn't never a time in my life 
that I blamed him. I mean, I don't even think he ever really came into the picture. I just knew what my new reality looked like, what I was going to be walking into. And it didn't look like anything I had ever prepared myself for. I had no idea what this thing was going to be. And I, and I know Dara's hand was all in this, this wave of forgiveness that came up. Now I did have preparedness and forgiveness, which came in the oddest of ways. And I never thought about that until I started talking with you. And we talked about this preparedness that because that forgiveness piece, I could imagine what it would be like to go the rest of my years, bitter, anger, uh, you know, hating everybody because of the mistake that this man made. But because I did have many opportunities to be able to forgive, that that forgiveness, when Dara washed that over me, it was just like, oh my God, my life was so complete. I mean, that was like heaven opening up curtains and, and the light just shone in. And it wasn't, there's no words I can put on that. It was such a feeling. And that feeling is still there. And it's not forgiveness. That's not the feeling I'm talking about. It's just, it's that, that overwhelming. I do use the word love because I don't know what else to say. It is that, love. It's what yes. I know too. It's that feeling of love. And there's only people who have it know it. Yeah. And people who don't want it. Yeah. And the truth is it's available. It's very much available and it's about letting go. And you and I were forced to let go. Yeah. Yeah. It's really about, you know, recognizing how much we have and that shout being the fact that we are right about, you know, the spirit world or the, you know, the energy realm or the other side is, is ever present, omnipresent. It's always here. They are always yeah. here. And Dara absolutely showered you in forgiveness. Yeah. And, and opened that door for you because that is an enormous lesson in our humanity because we're actually here to forgive each other. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, we're coming into the new energetic realm of, of a personal power instead of power over, which means, you know, which is a softer, more collaborative way to live. Yeah. Which is a non-war culture. Right. It's a coexisting, co-creating, you know, power. And that's the, you know, more the feminine power, if you will. And although that gets confusing for people because masculine power is where we've been, which is one domination, one event, you know, one person dominating millions. And now we're talking about people coexisting in, in small groups and town meeting sizes and helping each other one-on-one-on-one. -on -one -on -one. That's where we're going. And that if you look at our kids, the thirties and under, they're naturally collaborative. They're actually wired differently than we are yeah. as adults. So, but that love you talk about is ultimately what is being showered on all of us right now. Yeah. And it has been. And until we let go and we allow our, we have to make room for it. <laughs> I mean, if we can't, if we're constantly twisted up, literally twisted into such a, a state of fear. What could possibly fit in? Yeah. And my favorite, one of my favorite movie quotes, I always quote, you know, pop culture. I always quote movies for some reason. But in the movie Avatar, if you've seen Avatar, Avatar is about a, a planet in space and it has an indigenous people, much like our indigenous people that are rooted into their earth and, the, and everything is connected. Yeah. And they're trying to teach Americans, like people like us come in, of course, to take over because that's what we do. And the, the lead medicine woman says, we have tried to teach the sky people, but it's hard to fill a cup that's already full. Oh, I love that. Yeah. 
so James Cameron, who also did Titanic, who did Avatar, these are brilliant minds and they're talking about exactly what we're talking about in their method, in their, you know, in the motion picture method. But the messages are right there. And the idea is that we are all connected. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, for you and I, because of what we've lived through for other people listening and what they've lived through, if they're finding themselves down the path where we are, and I assume they are, they wouldn't be listening, then you start to understand the harmony in finding your way here. And that that's really our purpose is to remember that we are one. We're not separate. It's in the analogy when I learned this the first time, it's that, you know, the ocean is the ocean of water. And we are, in fact, individual drops, right. but we're, we're part of the same thing. And the big, the duality, the contrast that we came, you know, that humanity has been fighting with forever is that we separated from God and that we're being punished. Yeah. But it's not right. Yeah. <laughs> we never did. Yeah. That's the unfortunate misdirection of organized, the messages, some of the messages of organized religion. Right. Right. So, and, and understanding that that was necessary at the time for where humanity was, it no longer serves us. So that's really the phraseology that has to be that the phrase, the word going forward for our kids, for the future is discernment. Yeah. Does that information feel right to you? Right. Right. You know, and it's really about to, we really need to grow and exercise our intuitive muscle. Absolutely. Which is, has been sitting there forever. Yeah. It's just been poo-pooed and ignored and put, brushed aside as weak and feminine when guess what? Ultimately, it's going to be more important than the other five senses put together. Oh my God, absolutely. And that is where I get so lit up with all of this stuff too, because the five senses, I love the five senses, right? I mean, we need them to navigate this earth. We need to have them and they're wonderful. How would we ever enjoy a sunrise or a sunset or smell a flower or the taste of a, of a delicious meal or the feeling of you know holding, holding your child or holding your loved one, whatever that is. Five senses are fabulous. But we have those six main mental faculties and intuition being one of them and imagination. Those are the two that seem to get misused all the time because either you're in like, oh, well, I, my intuition told me and it was ahead. It's completely analytical and you can see somebody analyzing the situation, the pros and cons and weighing it out. Intuition doesn't do that. Intuition just says, turn right. And it's like, that doesn't make any sense. Turn right. And it doesn't have a conversation. It doesn't have a story. And it shows up and guides you all the time. And I, in my opinion, that's always God just speaking right to us. It is. And our, it is. yes. And our imagination. Well, it's how we're connected. Yes. It's how we're actually connected. So when you align, right, when you get into the meditation, so we really need to talk about going forward. We need to talk about stillness Yeah. in our world of technology. So stillness will be the critical factor to offset and keep in balance as we move forward into a technological age, because we're still really kind of in the beginning. Yeah. And, but we're still human. We're always going to be human. A human being is not going to be artificial intelligence. They might make artificial intelligence to seem like a human, but it will not go the other way. Right. Yeah. So as long as a computer or a robot can't hug you and look you in your eye and tell you it's going to be okay, because in my opinion, they really can't. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if that's where we're going, I don't even know what to say. Right. <laughs> that's a brand I, new conversation. I, yeah, I'll have to think about that. <laughs> but, um, but the point is that, you know, we really have this gift. Being human is an incredible gift. You know, the human being, the mechanism of the brain and the body is absolutely a miracle. Yeah. How the heck did we become? 
you know, what is this? It's not from man. It's from something much bigger than us. Yeah. You know, so to remind us ourselves and see the grace and the beauty that we have just in being able to move our bodies and breathe in and out. Yeah. Yeah. Is remarkable. Yeah. And so to, we, we will lose one of the most beautiful parts of ourselves if we forget how to tap into our humanity. That we do through our sensory input, our taste, touch, sight, smell, and sound. That because we have to hug each other, we have to hold each other, we have to touch. You know, the intuition is the actual direct link, the direct channel, the phone call to the higher power is when you meditate and you connect through stillness yeah. through your higher power that sits about six or your higher self, which sits about the chakra six to ten inches above your crown of your head. That yeah. is open, babe. Like it's there. Yeah. And all you have to do is close your eyes and be quiet. Yeah. And breathe. Yeah. It's amazing how hard that is to do. I'm the first one to say it because we are still so wound up in our reptilian primitive minds. Right. Yeah. So the sage mind needs to be able to be quiet. Absolutely. And I would be one to offer that it took me many years to be able to get to that point. I can't stay there for a long time, but I can absolutely have those moments where I can be still and quiet and just be in that moment. And it may only last 30 seconds, mm -hmm. but it took me 10 years, maybe 20 years to get to that point to say, I have 20 seconds. So anybody who's thinking, oh my God, I've tried it. Cause you hear that a lot. I've tried that. I've tried that. It, it doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me. And sometimes I think the things that we need to have the most are the things that we have to work the hardest at. And it's like, so just don't quit. Just keep trying. It's going to take practice. You're going to have to keep trying to get to that space. But if you don't practice it every day and just practice it for a minute at a time, it doesn't have to be this long hour long thing. You literally can just try to do it for a minute at a time. And you'll start realizing, oh my God, I have glimpses of that. I am doing that. I am in this place of still. And everything that shifts physiologically, it's just incredible what happens to the body when we can get this mind just to be quiet and settle down and allow for that space to open up. And whatever information you you get in that is just profound. It's absolutely true. And, and that's, you bring up such a good point. And I, I'm the same, you know, we were not ever taught to do this um, in the Eastern cultures and in the Eastern philosophy, they are taught. Yeah. They've been doing it for 10,000 years. Yeah. Meditation, quietness, stillness is absolutely an integral part of their culture. So we are still unwriting the, oh, that's weird to sit and <laughs> meditate. You know, because we're these judgmental and, and we haven't even gotten into one of my deep opinions, which is, you know, that the United States of America suffer, suffers from national adolescence because yeah. we're very, very young as a culture. Yeah. So, you know, we don't, we think we know everything just like a teenage boy, but guess what? We really don't. And yeah. there's so much to learn and there's so many ways to look at things and not our way is always right. Yeah. And it's, it's so the idea is that people need to just forgive themselves and practice and be nice to themselves and say, I tried and not give up, like you said, because we're trying to literally turn an enormous ship. You know, if, if there's a ship and a freighter on the water, you're not going to turn it any time. It takes miles to make a turn. Right. So if you just remember, it's going to take miles for us to get our heads around this. I've been working on this for many, for 15 years, and I can get to the place now where I could be in a state of meditation for a long period of time. Yeah. But it's taken me a long time, and I still don't get to it every day. Yeah. 
and I still can't always quiet myself because we all live a busy life. Right. Yeah. You know, and the truth is we just have to be nice to ourselves and keep like you're saying, like you're saying, everything now is a practice. So if we could unwrite the things that we've learned, there is no perfection. There never was. It's all imperfect, perfectly imperfect. And that's why we're interesting. And that's part of learning in this contrast that we're in, in this physical experience is we have to have imperfection. Yeah. Yeah. Or we couldn't, or we would have no contrast. That's not going to work. Right. What's the point? Right. 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 So, you know, if if people, and it was when I understood what it meant to, what self-love meant to me, it was only a few years ago. And I realized that it's when I needed to love my bad selves, my, my, what I would consider my not great sides more than my good. Yeah. Because the good stuff's easy to love. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like that child that's giving you such a hard time. Do you not love them? Yeah. Of course you love them. Yeah. That's just behavior. Well, you have to look at yourself that way as well. Right. Right. You know, we have to be gentle with ourselves. We were not cultured this way. Most of us. You know, there's an enormous amount of inner child work you can do that actually heals that child who feels bad all the time. And that's what a lot of what the, the issues of self-love are, is rooted in our childhoods and the misunderstandings of the people who raised us and the stories that we've told ourselves in our little child minds that people at that time didn't understand just how brilliant and how connected children were. Right. Absolutely. We know that of our own children now. It's going to be their children that really are the beneficiaries of this because we're the pivotal generation that we're even in our 50s having this conversation. Yeah. It's going to be normal. It's already normal for the 30 and unders and their kids, which is what's called Generation Alpha, which is anyone born after 2010. This is what they'll know. This is normal. They'll do it in school. That's so beautiful. And that's one of the things I don't even remember where I saw the article, but they were even talking about in some of the schools, maybe this was in England. I don't know if it's in the United States where they're having meditation for the kids Yeah, where they just get to sit and be quiet for a while. And they have it here. Yeah. Oh, do okay. Good. Yeah. Because it, well, not all, not here, but you'll hear it in our culture. It's coming. Yeah. Because it, when you've got a, a bunch of kids running around all day, get them all quiet. And you're going to have a better day. Oh man, absolutely. And when they can <laughs> you know? be in touch with themselves and understand yeah. why I feel the way I feel, I'm super pissed off. But why am I pissed off? And right. I know for my son, he never could articulate why. And it would be really easy to go back in time now and say, you know, because I don't, I can't do that math problem and Jimmy can do the math problem or whatever right. it happens to be. And then you get to notice for your own self, oh my God, I'm just comparing myself to somebody else. It doesn't mean right. I'm stupid at all, but that's the story I'm telling myself. Because nobody untold it for us. Right, right. Because, and, that, and we're still doing that to our kids. This Absolutely. lane of academics just needs to take a big U-turn because it's, it's making our kids insane. Thank you for spending time with us today. Please go to nadahogan.com for show notes and other information that you can use right away. If you like what you've heard here, please subscribe to the podcast. And don't forget to rate and review right there on iTunes, Stitcher, or however you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. We'll see you next week.